Well, good morning. If you um, brought along a copy of the Bible, I encourage you to find our Old Testament reading to actually a little before it, find Exodus chapter 15, uh, verse 22. Now, if you're new to the Bible, then you're in luck this morning. It's one of the easiest books in the Bible to find. You won't even have to use the table of contents. It's the second book of the Bible. So just head over a few pages to the right and you'll find it. On mine, it's page 68, so not very far in. Okay, we've been going through Exodus since the end of August, and last week, um, we found, we left off with Israel. They've crossed through the Red Sea, and um, finally they're free from slavery in Egypt, and they are having this wonderful celebration after generations of slavery. You can imagine the joy that they were experiencing, and they're just wildly celebrating, and Moses is leading them in this wonderful song, and they're praising God, and Miriam, Moses' sister, is leading them in dancing, and they're, they're going through all of this, and if you could just try to imagine it for a minute. Here they are, right, on the other side of the Red Sea, and imagine, it's like 600,000 men, at least as many women and children. This is this is a large group, right? And they're they're having a party. So it would be louder than Campbell Street on a Thursday night downtown when a few fraternities are rejoicing. So anyway, um, and if you don't live downtown, you don't know about part of Campbell Street yet. Maybe Devon Lane, louder than Devon Lane after a football game. Here they are, and it's echoing, echoing right across the sea back toward Egypt and echoing out into the wilderness. Then we get to Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Three days without a water source. Over a million people. This might lower the volume of the rejoicing, right? Can you imagine the weariness and the thirst and desperation under the merciless desert sun. Just imagine for a moment, Red Wing, three days into the festival, no water. It would be different, right? So here they are, they're, the children are crying, I'm sure. I'm sure the, the mothers are in despair. I'm, I'm sure some of the older people are fainting. I'm sure some of the men are angry. And then they finally find water. Verse 23. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water because it was bitter. So verse 24 naturally follows. They grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? They get really frustrated. They complain. They grumble. And who can blame them, right? Three days in without water. I mean, we know that's close to the limit of what a human being can experience and still live. Now, the irony is dripping from the page because remember, the first plague God made against Egypt was to make their water supply undrinkable. And the last big thing he did was Egypt was divide the water, let Israel go through. Egypt follows, water crashes on them and kills them. God's been handling water for a while, right? It's been at the beginning and end of this story, and now they're about to die because of water. So this is very ironic. Moses cries out to God, verse 25, 
And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. Better, if that's the ESV translation, probably better translated a tree. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So here is Israel in this desperate moment, and they're beginning to learn something about God that they didn't know. It's easy for us when we're reading at the beginning of the Bible to kind of accidentally bootleg back into it all the things we've learned about God over the course of the rest of the Bible. But you have to try to put yourself in their position. They're learning something about God that they didn't know. What they have learned about God is that he's powerful and he delivered them from slavery. But now they're seeing that not only is this God that was bigger and stronger than the Egyptian gods. Not only is he the most powerful God and he can protect them against the cruelest and most overwhelming of enemies, they're also learning that he can provide. That's a thing they haven't had to learn before. That's a thing they didn't know about him yet, that he's able to sustain them in the wilderness. And then listen to the last half of verse 25. Exodus 15, 25. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So here's another characteristic of God, right? So first thing they learned about God was his power. This God who shows up that they don't know him, he shows them that he's the most powerful God. The next thing they learn about God is his provision, that he can sustain your life. But here in verse 25, they learn a third thing about God. They learn that they can trust God's instructions. And that's a different thing. That he's got rules and he's got commandments and they can trust them. So not only is God a champion, he's also a provider. But a really difficult thing for a lot of us is that he's an instructor. And we have to relate to all three of these things with trust trust him to be our champion trust him to be our provider and trust his teachings you see apparently this whole fiasco with the lack of water was a test it's it's a kind of test that is a really well designed one not so much to assess but to teach a test designed to educate, to show something, to instruct something. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on Egypt, for I am the Lord your God. See, the point is God is teaching Israel that they've got to develop an orientation in life, an orientation of mind and heart and will that is more about 
him being the true teacher than it is about them knowing innately what's right and what's wrong. Israel has to learn a very difficult lesson to see right from wrong from God's perspective and not from theirs. They have to bring all of their intentions and all of their behaviors into alignment with his teaching, not their opinions or their thoughts, even if all of them share it together. To be a Christian is not only to put your trust in Jesus to save you from your sin and from death, to give you eternal life and the hope of glory and the resurrection of the body. That's part of it. Being a Christian is definitely about learning to trust Jesus in the hour of your death that he will save you from annihilation, from just blinking into the ether and no longer existing, that he will save you from hell, that he will save you from ceasing to exist. Being a Christian is definitely about learning to do that. It is about trusting Jesus in the hour of your death and with your life past the grave, but it is also about learning to trust Jesus right now, before you die, even with what is right and wrong. Now, do you see what's going on here? Back in Egypt with the plagues, with the last plague, the death of the firstborn, Israel had to trust God that dark night to deliver them from death. They had to courageously put their trust in God by sacrificing a lamb, which took enormous courage because a lamb was a sacred animal not allowed to be sacrificed in Egypt. So when God asked them to do that on a full moon, they were doing a thing in the presence of the Egyptians that could easily turn into a crystal knot, a night like the breaking of the glasses in Germany, the breaking of the windows, when, when the German people became like a mob and turned on the Jewish people. That night could have easily turned out like that. So when God asked them to sacrifice that lamb, they were having to express courage in their act of faith. That's what Paul calls in Romans chapter 1, the obedience of faith. Sometimes faith is an act of courageous obedience. And they had to do it that night. They had to courageously obey God that if they sacrificed a lamb, risking the, the wrath of Egypt, and they smeared that lamb's blood on their doorpost, which is like saying, not only did we kill a sacred animal to you, we, smeared, we painted our houses with this blood like your mama, right? They're, they're provoking Egypt. They had to do that. They had to do that courageous act of faith. But if they did it, God would save them from death that night. And now, God is teaching Israel, not only did he deliver them from Egypt, he was going to deliver them to himself. They were going to have to come into a relationship with him. And in that relationship with God, you not only trust him for life after death, you trust him with your life this side of death. And the hardest thing about that maybe even harder than trusting him to provide your needs is trusting what he says is right and wrong. Now, 
how do we get that? How do we know God's will, the right thing from the wrong thing to do? Because it's super confusing, right? I mean, it's so difficult. Think about a lot of the complex things we deal with in life, trying to figure out what is God's view of what's right here. Verse 26 says, Diligently listen to the voice of your God and give ear to his commandments. In other words, the voice of God, when it comes to right and wrong, is found in his commandments. So I beg you, please, please, please stop using any version of the motto, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. It's about relationship, not rules. If my wife ever said that to me, our relationship is total freedom. There are no rules. Rules are the opposite of our intimacy. Does that ever work in life? Really? No, it doesn't. See, God delivers Israel from bondage to himself. And being in relationship with a person or with God has expectations. It has rules. And where are God's rules to be found? They're found in Scripture. God has revealed his will, his views, his laws, his commandments, his expectation. He's revealed right from wrong in his word. So being a Christian is not only having a relationship with Jesus where you trust him with your soul. It's also trusting him with your mind and your will. It's submitting to his teachings and what you think about what is right and what is wrong. It's following his rules. Now, this is so difficult for us. It's so difficult for us. We live 500 years into a moment where authority is bad. Authority is suspect. We're told in our schools and in our favorite stories and in the things we watch for entertainment and on social media, we are flooded with the point of view that tradition is your enemy. Rules outside of you are trying to twist you. That what you've got to do is go in and find what's inside of you and bring it to birth. And like Elsa, you know, you've just got to let it be. You've just got to bring it out there. No matter what people, everything people are pushing on you is the threat. And everything inside of you is the good. And so we're so suspicious of authority and we're subtly taught to think that if you believe in the authority of the Bible, you're vulnerable to manipulation. As if your own inner desires are not manipulative. And coercive for hundreds of years here in the West, we've been taught the Bible is unreliable when it comes to telling what actually happened. I looked on uh, Wikipedia this morning. I typed in the Exodus. First line of Wikipedia was something like the founding myth of the Jewish nation, which the consensus among scholars today is it didn't actually happen. And then a thousand versions of that. And, and when it comes to science, well, we're taught the Bible is impossible because we know it took billions of years to create this habitable planet, not seven days, which I totally believe. But a lot of us grew up in a church where believing that, believing what science is establishing is against what the Bible teaches. And so you, you come and face with this and the Bible gets it wrong. 
And then when it comes to culture, I mean, look in the Bible, it's so regressive, like slavery and patriarchy. And then there's the morality of the Bible. Have you added up how many dead bodies are at God's feet and the feet of God's people in the Bible? And then there's just the text of the Bible, right? I mean, after all, we don't even have an original manuscript. What we do have has been edited and changed, not to mention it's full of contradictions. What I'm saying is we live 500 years downstream into this place where we've got a whole set of tools and plausibility structure that tells us the Bible is historically unreliable, scientifically impossible, culturally regressive, morally suspect, and textually corrupt. And so when I stand up here and say at the heart of Christianity is to trust it, dang, unless you've been living under a rock, that's hard. The Bible's interesting as far as it goes. After all, it's so massively influential in our world today. Blah, blah, blah. It's a piece of our history. But submitting to the teachings of it when they go against what deep in my bones I think is right and what everybody around me think is right, come on now. Look, I'm not trying to make light of these challenges. I'm trying to put them squarely on the board. They are real. They are serious. And we should take them seriously because trusting Jesus to save being a Christian requires trusting the Bible to tell the true story of the world and that it be authoritative for all of life today. Let me say it again. The Bible is the true story of the world and it is authoritative for all of life today. That is a basic belief of Christianity. The authority of the Bible is an essential component of the Christian faith. And without that belief, and not just that belief, but practice, without the authority of scripture, you do not have Christianity. You might still call yourself a Christian, you might still belong to a thing that calls itself a church, but what you've got is all the sound and fury, the trappings of Christianity, but it is a shell game. Without the authority of Scripture, Christianity is a different religion altogether. Now, I realize that this is not a simple thing for our church. I mean, after all, right now, sitting in this outdoor sanctuary, there are children and university students, there are young Christians and non-Christians, not to mention we come from a whole bunch of different faith traditions. We've got recovering fundamentalists and cradle Episcopalians and Presbyterians and Mennonites and Baptists and Methodists, and we have so many different backgrounds here. And all of us are coming from places that give us different kind of baggage when it comes to saying the Bible is authoritative. But as we're going through the book of Exodus, notice the first thing God does with Israel after he delivers them from Egypt is he uses the fundamental issues of life, water, to say to them, you got to trust my word. Not only my action to deliver you, but if we're going to carry on in this experiment together, lesson number one, my view of right from wrong is the correct view. Our, our culture teaches us that we know right from wrong by what we think in our peer set thing. 
and that it somehow can get it right when the Bible, eh, humans invented it. Listen again. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, look what he says. If you do that, I will put none of the diseases on you that he put on the Egyptians. Now that pronoun in the last part of that verse, you, is plural. This is so important. God is promising Israel, if you will learn to walk by my ways, you, plural, will flourish. It is not a promise that no single individual will get sick. It is a promise that the way a community flourishes is by living by God's ways. In other words, obedience to God's laws is good for society. Now, surely we can see the truth of that. Surely we can see the truth of this promise if we look at modern Western societies when whole cultures to choose to live for the gods of their own hands. We become sick. Our societies become sick. Now, notice what happens next. Notice verse 27. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the waters. Israel after they get this teaching from God, they show up at this amazing oasis. It's like Louisiana, just the promised land. Water everywhere. Twelve springs of water. One spring for each tribe of Israel. Seventy palm trees. One palm tree for each Israelite that came down to Egypt going when they moved there. There were 70 of them. It was like God said, evolution's no big deal for me. I can put a seed in a ground that I know 70 years later is going to be my message of love and care to a group of people. I can handle evolutionary processes so that 12 springs of water land in one place. So that in one moment of time, a group shows up who has 12 tribes. Like, I, I, can, I can make all of this coach, all of nature, I can bring it to bear as a love letter. This God that we know and we worship and we love and has won our hearts and our loyalty, he is so powerful and he is so generous and he cares. And we get then to chapter 16 that Tom read to us. The people of Israel continue on their journey. Six weeks pass. They travel from one place designated by God to another. And eventually, they run out of the food supplies that they brought with them from Egypt. And once again, they start to grumble, which is understandable. Mass starvation is brutal. And once again, God uses their desperate need. Notice verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. Here he is again, testing them. But remember, it's test, the kind of test that doesn't assess. It's the kind of test that forms. That I may test them whether they will walk in my ways or not. Now, what was the test? Well, God told them to gather only enough for each day's needs, except on the sixth day when they would gather enough for that day and the seventh, the Sabbath also. 
Is Israel going to learn to follow God's will, not just in the major acts of like deliverance, but also in the daily details of life? Verse 13 of Exodus 16, God provides meat every evening. In verse 14, he provides bread every morning. And the way it's a test is that God's rule is helping them learn to trust that if they will walk in his ways, he will supply all they need to flourish. God is teaching Israel they can trust him. Now, how about you? Have you stopped and considered this remarkable fact that there is a God, he is strong, he is the strongest of all the gods. He's in a class all by his own, and he knows you, and he cares for little old you. He really, really does. He cares. And, and what is he teaching you on this journey you're in, this journey between the Red Sea and the Promised Land? Look, God's people have always read these stories of Israel in the wilderness as a metaphor for our life in between our baptism and when God heals us and makes all things new and takes us to himself. This journey between your baptism and when you're received into the arms of God and await your new body and the world being renewed. Have you learned that he cares for you? Look, when Jesus was in the wilderness, hungry and thirsty, and the devil met him in his weakened state and tempted him, how did Jesus respond? He responded in a way that proves he had been reading these stories. He had been bringing them all the way down until they formed his identity. And he looked at his temptation as a, technically it's called a recapitulation, as I'm going through what Israel went through. And so when he answered Satan, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He was so deeply shaped by this story that this story gave him the template for resisting a very intense temptation. That while his father could provide bread, what mattered most was the living word that came from God's mouth. And Jesus proved to us that that living word was scripture because it was scripture he was quoting. What about you? Are you immersing yourself in the Bible like it matters as much as bread and water do when you're wandering in a desert? I mean, are you doing what it takes so that the, the truest stories, the stories you believe the most, are the stories in Scripture? Do you know how hard it is to hold on to that? Janelle and I have started we enjoying watching this uh, show, Modern Family. It's hilarious. But there are stories it's telling that are flat-out lies. How will Janelle and I enjoy this show at the end of the day and not some of the stories of the show that are flat out lies become a thing we believe more than this? 
You see, that's why our church, ask everybody who's a part of our church, worship with us on a weekly basis and be in a small group every week because this is not enough. Reading the Bible on Sunday and hearing a sermon is not enough to counteract the amazing stories our culture is telling that are filled with both truth and lies. And you've got two options. Either cut them all off entirely or learn how to live in a culture of stories with a bigger story washing them all away, washing through all of them. Me and my family, we've chosen we're not leaving culture. We're not moving out. We're not cutting off every story our culture tells in order to escape the lies. Because at the end of the day, how do you actually pull that off? Even if you don't watch Modern Family, even if you only watch like, I don't know, I guess there's channels out there that tell other things. Here's the trick. If you're going to live in a culture, unless you're going to move away, if you're going to live in a culture, you've got to take a commitment to Scripture that's serious enough to become truer and more believable with the Bible than the stories you're, you're watching and reading. That's why you've got to go to church every Sunday. That's why you need to be in a small group every week. And that's why you need to learn some way to reflect on Scripture privately, personally, on a daily basis. You need all of this pumping away into your life because we live in this storied world. And you need to be able, when the chips are down, to know that God's Word is true. And it's truer than even the stories that feel more true. Now, there's a lot that that's general. We're going to, you know, pretty much leave it there. Let me just give you a teaser of what is to come. The stories our Bible tells about sexuality and gender don't feel true today to anybody other than conservative Christians. The story our Bible tells about economics don't feel true today to right-wing Republicans. In fact, there's a whole nother sermon on this chapter where God is introducing biblical economics. And he's teaching about sufficiency instead of hoarding. And he's teaching about the way an economic policy can be better than the Egyptian economic policy. And we don't have time to go into this morning, but look, if right-wing Republicans can't be open to a critique of economics, then can we expect left-wing Democrats to be open to a critique of sexuality? God's word is true all the way across the board. It was true before our two-party um, political system got here, and we've got to be open to it. We've got to be. We've got to be delivered from reading the Bible through the lens of our own middle-class morality, which protects us with certain virtues and, and shields us from seeing certain vices. The word of God is true, and it is authoritative for all of life. And the journey between baptism and kingdom come is learning to be delivered from the gods of Egypt. Let's pray.